Welcome to Season 8 of the HPS Cast. I'm your host, Colbert Cannon. If you're new to the pod, HPS is a global investment firm. We manage approximately $100 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional and retail investors. That capital is invested across private and public credit strategies. Each week, I sit down with key relationships to, partners of, and friends of the firm to learn from their experience, ask how that experience shapes their current roles, and give insights into HPS and how we operate. So with that, let's bring in our guest. Our guest this week is the founding partner of a leading international art advisory firm based in London and New York. After Eton, he attended the University of Edinburgh, where he studied art history. After graduation, he joined art advisory firm Simon Dickinson, where he spent over a decade in various roles. In 2006, he relocated to New York with Dickinson at their Dickinson Roundell Gallery. And in 2013, he took the entrepreneurial step of launching his own venture, partnering with Wentworth Beaumont to launch Beaumont Nathan, an international art brokerage and advisory business. This gentleman is an old friend of the firm, and he and his team have been great partners to us. If you have ever visited our offices and admired anything on the walls, you have Beaumont Nathan's keen eyes to thank for that. So I'm very excited to welcome in this week's HPS cast guest, Hugo Nathan, co-founding partner of Beaumont Nathan. Hugo, welcome to the pod. Colbert, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. All right, Hugo, I like to start from the beginning. Let's go all the way back. Where are you from originally? I am London born and bred. So I'm a quintessential Englishman uh, until I moved over to your side of the pond in 2006. And I think by virtue of spending more than seven years over there, I can claim to be a New Yorker. There you go. You get both sides. Um, Now, as I mentioned, you attended Eton for school. I always think it's funny when schools in the U.S., like my alma mater, are so proud of their history being found in 1636. Eton has, in fact, been around since 1440. What was it like going to school in that historic of an institution? It was a real privilege. Apart from anything else, you uh, almost take for granted the fact that you're living in a sort of such a historical environment and surrounded by these incredible buildings pretty much on a daily basis and just interacting with them. Amazing. Now, it's obviously the through line of your life, but did you start getting serious about studying art even in high school? Like, when did that come to you, Hugo? I have always been interested in in art, and I think it was probably at high school that I realized I didn't quite have the minerals to make it as a career as an artist. I actually did work experience at Christie's when I was, I think, 16 years old and worked there in my school holidays. So at that point, I knew I wanted a career in the art world. And why, Hugo? What drew you to it? Like, did you see a piece of art that struck you? Like, what was it that makes it so integral to what you do? I guess different people have different skill sets, and I'm definitely not numerate. So a a career in finance was probably always going to be a bridge too far for me. But I always loved the creative arts and would have loved to have been an artist. But um, but like I said, as soon as I realized there was an alternative where you could actually have a, a salaried job and um, and also get to spend so much time in the company of great works of art, uh, I realized that, that the art market was the career for me. And, you know, just working as a porter at Christie's as a teenager, you actually get to sort of pick up works by Monet, Rembrandt, etc. And I remember holding them up. And you'd go in and go through drawers full of uh, Egyptian antiquities and things. So unlike being in a museum where you probably have to treat the objects with a little more care and uh, and reverence, the art market, you actually sort of have a practical handling of all of these things. I love it. You go on to study art history at the University of Edinburgh. Was there any particular focus areas? Where did you spend your time within that world? 
I like to think of myself as a jack of all trades and a master of some, but um, <laughs> but uh, I sort of switched around quite a bit, but I specialized quite randomly in uh, art in France at the end of the 19th century, really focusing on Gauguin, Van Gogh. That was my thesis. And also on uh, medieval art in Florence and Siena. Okay, so you graduate, you start at Simon Dickinson out of school in the late 90s. For listeners less familiar, Hugo, what was Simon Dickinson when you joined? Simon Dickinson was, you mentioned earlier, an art advisory, and they were also a dealership. Simon Dickinson himself had been at Christie's for 25 years. And then in the uh, recession of the early 90s, when the auction houses let go of a large number of their best specialists, they all ended up forming galleries and so by the time I graduated from, from university, all the great sort of galleries, new galleries were formed out of people who had left Christie's and Sotheby's. And Simon Dickinson was one of them. And um, we handled extraordinary works by Van Gogh and Gauguin, Picasso, and, and a lot of the great modern artists and also works by some of the most extraordinary old masters that I actually feel pretty privileged to have had any contact with. Well, it's remarkable, especially as a 22-year-old. Tell me, Hugo, like, what were those first jobs? I'm sure some of them were menial. You're literally picking things up and moving them from place to place. But like your first days in the job, what are you actually doing day to day, Hugo? I am not ashamed to tell you that I make a mean cup of tea. <laughs> and I still always say to anybody who works here at my company, if they have a client meeting, I am happy to make them tea and coffee. And um, there was a bit of that. I did a bit of chauffeuring. Um, I'm sure I picked up some dry cleaning. I hung paintings, took them to restorers and framers, which was really exciting because then you really learn about framing. And, and I got a pretty encyclopedic understanding of picture conservation from hanging out with all the restorers that, um, that support the art trade. And I would also go to uh, clients' homes and pick up uh, works of art that they wanted to sell and also install works of art that they'd bought. So you mentioned the learning, you know, studying art in university and the business of art are related, but they're not the same. It's like studying economics and then becoming an investor, right? They're correlated, but it's not exactly the same stuff. How did you learn what you didn't know on the job? I think the key difference between learning about art and academics and people who work in the art business is the proximity to the objects themselves. And, um, we now live in the information and image sharing age. And um, obviously, when I started my career, a lot of photography was still in black and white. A lot of images for art history were studied and seen in black and white. And obviously, digital images were just in their very nascence and, uh, and impossible to read, as you'll probably remember those pixelated things that took hours to download. So you found that by actually handling these things, you really understood them quite often better than really quite sophisticated academics. And I loved that about the art trade, that the dealers really knew what they were talking about and really had an understanding of the objects at first hand. And I think um, it's either in your blood or not, but, you know, you've got to like people because ultimately the art business is a sales business and a bit of show business as well. And um if you like that, you're going to thrive. Listen, I've been trying to convince my partners that the HPS cast is my version of show business with, to, limited, uh, to limited success. Uh, makes complete sense, Hugo. Now, if I have my timeline right, and you mentioned this, after about seven years, you moved from London to New York. Why was that an important move for you at that point? It's 
being one of the great things that ever happened to me. I am not one of those limeys that sit over here dreaming about going over to New York and uh, and winning everybody over with my novel English accent. It has sort of hadn't really occurred to me and the opportunity arose. I'd been traveling quite a bit in the States and um, uh, a big client of the Dickinson business were American museums and um, uh, who, who acquired uh, and certainly used to acquire voraciously. And um, the opportunity came, I moved over and I don't regret it. And I loved learning about how things are done in the States. It's much, everything's much more transactional in all business, but particularly in the art business. And, um, you know, New York still remains the epicenter of the art market. And I think it's very much a gateway to, to everything that lies further west. All right. So we're up to 2013. You decide to strike out on your own. Now, being an entrepreneur, you know, it's exciting, but it's a tremendous amount of work. And you're obviously taking some amount of uh, risk, making a bet on yourself. Why was that the right time for you to take that plunge, Hugo? Well, I guess I had one seven-year itch when I moved to the U.S. And then uh, and then it was about seven years or so later that I decided it was time to, uh, to branch out on, on my own and try and do something for myself and something new. And I felt I had a, a great network of um, clients, contacts in the trade and academic contacts in museums. And I wanted to give it a go. I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur. And um, if I wasn't still in business now, I probably would know that I wasn't. But um, uh, luck was on my side. And I also was very lucky to have a business partner who um, who's brilliant. And, um, and I sort of haven't looked back, but we set up the business without knowing we were going to be art advisors. And we actually looked at it a different way and thought, what do collectors need? And it's an industry that didn't really offer unconflicted advice. Advice came from the auction house specialists and from dealers, but not from independent third parties. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. That independence in particular, Hugo. So I'm just kind of curious, your, your partner, how did you guys get to know each other? Well, I like to think he doesn't look any younger than me, but he is a few years my junior and he's also uh, an Edinburgh University alumni. And when he graduated, he was seconded for an internship with me at the Dickinson Gallery. And that's how we first met. He then went off to Christie's to learn his craft there and stayed there for five years. And he actually moved to New York um, the same week as I did, um, and he working for Christie's. And when he moved back, I suggested to him he'd take my old vacated position at the London Gallery of Dickinson. And so we um, worked together from opposite sides of the Atlantic for five years before heading off into business together. I love it. All right. So you're well familiar with each other. I'm always curious with duos in business together. You can go back to our first HBS cast, actually. Brian Marcel from Alvarez and Marcel is an example. How do you handle disagreements when you know you're right and Beaumont has the opposite take? How do you manage it? I mean, I'd love to say we never disagree, but there's plenty of healthy debate. I think there's like quite often the first resort is just to shout over your business partner and see if that works. Um, and um, uh, he's a... Uh, He's a pretty big character. So on the whole, I pick my battles. And if I really, really do 
vociferously um, disagree with him. I think he knows because that doesn't happen often to take it seriously. I'm always curious when you look back. So you said, you know, the original business plan, you, you get all this advice. What's worked out the way you thought? Like when you look back and you say this part we got right, what do you look at and credit some of your success with from those original decisions? I can tell you exactly what it is. It's client alignment. We didn't rush into business. We really thought through everything about what we would do, how we would charge, how everything would work, how our interactions would work. And and it was all about avoiding conflict and doing what's in the best interest of the client. And I'm pretty proud to say that actually when it comes to transactions or, or working on any projects, the last thing on our mind is our fees. And we've always worked on the basis that if we get the right outcome for our clients, we'll get the right outcome for Beaumont Nathan. And it's been nearly 10 years and that has always been the case. Well, it turns out that's good advice regardless of the line of work you're in. How about the other way, Hugo? You know, no entrepreneur gets everything right. What mistakes did you make early on and how did you learn from those? Uh, hopefully you learn from mistakes as an entrepreneur because they're inevitable, sometimes through naivety and uh, and sometimes through inexperience. Um, I think some of the mistakes that affected our business was almost um, getting great opportunities too early in the business. And there are a few uh, people we might have pitched to who were mega collectors, and we were sort of pretty green youngsters. I think the other thing as an entrepreneur is getting a good balance between uh, being bold and being cautious. And um, we always planned to open in the U.S., as I moved back to the UK to found the business and then planned to then expand on into Asia. And actually, we delayed our US opening until March 2020. And the week that I was meant to go uh, and move back to the US and open our New York office was the week Donald Trump closed airspace. And so it, it took us a little longer than we planned to open our New York office. So we had to think on our feet a bit, but it seems to have all worked out now. Well, listen, as I mentioned at the top, Hugo, your firm has worked with HPS to make sure they don't just have you know, blank walls at our offices. Tell us about that kind of work. How do you interface with a financial institution like ours to come up with the right kind of art portfolio? It has been a fascinating experience, a really enriching project, I think, for both sides to work on this. It was a pretty novel thing for us because we tend to work with individuals and not institutions and I like to think for anybody who works there that the art collection is, is thoughtful, intelligent, and, um, but also playful and colorful and makes it a sort of more enjoyable place to work. And, um, you know, I think a lot of art that is made today is fantastic. It's fascinating. It's playful, courageous, um, and sometimes challenging. But I do think that there's a lot of art made that whilst impressive and maybe you'd go and see it at an exhibition museum, nobody would want it on their walls. And, um, you know, you have to think relatively democratically with uh, hundreds of people and very diverse people seeing things and make sure that these are things that people are going to really enjoy and also visitors to the office are going to remember. Well, are there any works that you're particularly excited about that when you think back about, you know, sort of your work with us that you really were proud of? There are a few things. The temptation as an art advisor, and this is probably the same for anybody in a, in a creative job, 
whether they're making movies or uh, or building houses, is um you want people with a limitless budget. But when you're when you're working for a financial institution, you know that there's going to be an element of common sense involved. So we so we tried to be clever. We anchored the collection with sort of some American classics, and I particularly love the uh, Calder tapestry that's in the building because he really is one of the greatest American artists of the 20th century. And then, um, you know, there's a fantastic artist who is um, Palestinian and Polish of origin, but based in the US in in New York and Brooklyn called Jordan Nassar. And um, uh, HPS has three works by him. And he makes um, these incredible patterned paintings that quite often have sort of imaginary landscapes. And they aesthetically remind me of um, the great landscape screen paintings that come out of Asia. Then there's a fantastic DNA study by quite a senior American artist um, called MacArthur Binion, which I'm sure you will know that's uh, made up of these small uh, squares. It's divided into three vertically in a sort of orange, red, green and, and purple. And it's made up of these small squares. And I feel very proud that you have a work of his in your office. Ah, fantastic. When you walk through the walls, it's really, really cool stuff that uh, we're very proud to have worked with you on. So long as you can uh, all concentrate on your work and not get distracted by the art. <laughs> exactly. We're recording this in, in early 2023. There's volatile markets, inflation's on the rise. How do you think about art as an investable asset class? You know, is, is it a good inflation hedge in an inflationary environment? Is it challenging in this climate? Like, what do you think about it as an asset? We, as, as art advisors don't really like art being sold as a a short-term investment. I think it's quite destructive for artists, for the market. It encourages sort of very quick trading of of assets and and sort of makes the market quite unstable, but it also stops people looking at the underlying asset. I think as a long-term investment, art is brilliant. I I think... um, you get to live with something if you really love it. And if you've bought it carefully and you haven't overpaid when you've acquired it and you've bought something really meaningful and beautiful, not only do you get years of enjoyment out of it, but I like to think that usually it proves to be a very successful investment. I think it's great who you go. And and your point of buying it right sort of solves everything and holding, (laughs) again, sage advice regardless of what you're in. The art world's fascinating. Thank you. We appreciate your thoughts. With that, Hugo, I want to move to the last segment of the podcast, something we like to call Best Ideas, where we offer up something that's added value in our lives recently. Hugo, as our guest, I'm going to ask you to go first. What is your best idea this week? I returned yesterday from a town called Maastricht in the epicenter of of Euroland, which um, is where the Maastricht Treaty was signed. And it's in Holland, but a very short drive from the German, Belgian and French borders. And it is the home to an international art fair each year, which is really one of the greatest art fairs in the world. And I recommend anybody to visit it because under one enormous roof, and I was there for three days and don't feel like I saw everything, it is like going to the Metropolitan Museum, but with price tags on everything. And you can see pieces of Chinese jade, you can see 19th century African masks, and pre-Columbian gold. You can see jewelry, old master paintings and altarpieces from medieval times, carved ivories, absolutely extraordinary diversity of things. 
all under one roof and contemporary art and sort of art deco design. And it's just fascinating talking to all the exhibitors, the dealers who really love talking about their inventory and educating you. So it's like going to a museum where the curators are actually standing next to the displays. And I have to say, it's just the most enlightening, enriching thing. And I would recommend everybody to go at least once. I love it. The Art Fair of Maastricht, is that what it is? It's called the it's called TAFAF, the European yeah. Fine Art Fair. It's in go. Maastricht in March every year. There's no nice hotel to stay in. So you so that's a bit of an adventure. The food is uh is questionable, but the art is absolutely extraordinary and um and it's absolutely fantastic. And I have to say, I know a number of people, whatever their budget, who go there every year and buy something and they end up with a fascinating collection. That's a great recommendation. Thank you, Hugo. Well, for mine then, as listeners know, I like to be inspired by the guests of the week. So with Hugo coming on, I obviously started thinking about the art world. Um, In that vein, I wanted to recommend an exhibition at the Met here in New York. My best idea this week is the remarkable artist Cecily Brown and a recently opened Death and the Maid exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan. It's running April to December of this year. Uh, Like our guest, Cecily moved to New York from England earlier in her career, and her assertive abstract works, often in quite large scale, have thrilled the art world for decades. I find her work stunning myself, and I will quote a smarter critic than me who said, she subverts expectations in abstract expressionism with a feminine edge to what that at the time was quite a male-dominated space. And I'll simply say, as a rank amateur, when you walk by one of her pieces, you can literally get stopped in your tracks, which I always think sort of tells you everything you need to know. The Met Exhibition, it's the first full-fledged museum survey of her work in New York since she moved here, and it is both well-deserved and thrilling for her fans. So in honor of our guest from the art world, who similarly spends time in both New York and London, let me recommend the incomparable Cecily Brown and her Met Exhibition, Death and the Maid. Hugo, thoughts on Cecily? She is a fantastic artist. I love her work. I've been a fan for a very long time. She's brilliant. She has a great understanding and knowledge of art history and everything that's gone before her. And that takes a certain amount of humility in in a living artist. She makes incredible paintings, beautiful paintings, big and small. I would love one to make its way into the collection at HBS. I can't wait to come over to New York next and see the show. And um, I think that's a fantastic recommendation. Perfect, the best kind of best idea, one that our guests uh, co-endorses. Hugo, with that, it's time to wrap up for the week. Sincerely appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Always great to catch up. And thank you so much for all your hard work on our behalf. Colbert, that's been an absolute pleasure. Great to see you again. Thanks again to our guest, Hugo Nathan. Check out our show notes to learn more about Hugo and his art brokerage and advisory firm, Beaumont Nathan. You'll also find links to all the artists mentioned in today's episode, as well as to Hugo's best idea, the European Fine Art Fair, and to my best idea of the week, the stunning works by British painter Cecily Brown. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. The opinions expressed on this podcast are that of the host, Colbert Cannon, and the guest of each episode, and do not necessarily reflect the views of HPS Investment Partners.